Blog Talk Radio.
This is Alphonse's takeaway and declaration of the Pan African Journal. The Pan African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Thursday, uh, January the 11th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan African Journal. This special edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the Republic of South Africa filing a, of a case against the State of Israel for genocide at the International Court of Justice. Iran says it is in support of the Republic of South Africa case against Tel Aviv. Fighting continues in Sudan between the armed forces and the rapid support forces. And Cameroon in West Africa is introducing a vaccine to combat malaria. In the second hour, we listened to a media briefing by South African Minister of Justice Ronald Lamola on the case uh, against uh, the State of Israel for genocide at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. We then review recent events uh, in Palestine through a panel of experts uh, from Electronic Intifada, one of the primary sources uh, on uh, the situation in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, uh, led by Francois uh, Luamba, uh, known as Franco, uh, with uh, two women vocalists, Banyel and Nana. Let's listen in. Yeah, I'm 
Opetinga numéro Ya balabala pena zono vanda kase flora Katina salaboni lokola na lingio Sala no ki no ki ngai na yo tokutana e Salangai plaisir, tokutana to solola, na kanisi encore regretter mon kete o flora. Na yemi maloba ya mi bali ya mi koloyo, pasi bona ngala sali, o ki pedie. Flora na lingina pesa yo ni corona bomengo na nse, banani bazali to sanginya yo flora. Na moke azoka na moke apesa Kufa nzawe akotunayo mobali natinda ki oboya ki etina Yombe mokolo kufa nzawe akotunayo ozala ki boloko mose ya moninga otina e Flora okosinga e vraiment opetinga numero ya balabala pena zono vanda kate Flora Nabanga ki nabanga ki Sina salaboni lokola na lulio salano kino kinga na yo tokutana na boina ngao salina mwasina yo maipena zali na mobali na ngaidie salanga i plaisir tokutana to solola na kanisi oko regrete mon kete o flora na yemi maloba yemi bali yemi koloyo kasi bona ngala zali Nalingina pesa yo ni corona bomengo nanse banani bazali koko sa yo flora Namokea soka namokea pesa kangai Wanae kokina ngai odie Esto kokiko la kisangai mopali na yo natala sokia kokani nangai flora Alandenge borataka ba chance na mokili anzawe nzawe atindinga na yo tolingana e ngai pesawe motatina malibala abona kosa mobali na ngai odie mokolo kokufa nzawe akotuna yo mobali na tinda ki oboya ki etina e yobe mokolo kokufa nzawe akotuna yo osala ki koluma Lo colas 
The Iranian foreign ministry, in a statement released on Wednesday, said Israel, enjoying unconditional and unrestricted support uh, from certain governments, has been carrying out full-scale and vicious military attacks against Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip and the occupied West Bank over the past three months and has been infringing upon all international conventions concerning oppressed Palestinians. The Islamic Republic of Iran once again strongly denounced the apartheid Zionist regime's war crimes and genocide against the Palestinian nation and expresses uh, its support for resistance as a liberation movement and legitimate right recognized by the international law for the Palestinian nation in the struggle against occupation, the statement read. It went on to urge international bodies and agencies, including the UN Security Council, to adopt immediate and practical steps aimed at complete succession of Israeli military strikes on Gaza. The majority of respondents viewed the U.S. position about Israeli aggression on besieged Gaza Strip negatively. The ministry also voiced Iran's support uh, for South Africa's responsible, courageous, and honorable move, uh, which is said uh, was based upon international law in defense of the Palestinian nation. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. A combined force of the Sudanese Army and Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, the SPLM-North, under the leadership of Abdel Aziz Al-Hilu, thwarted an offensive launched by the Rapid Support Forces against the city of Diling in South Kordofan. According to a military source in the second town of South Kordofan, quote, the Army and the SPLAN forces repelled the third attack in four days on Diling carried out uh, by the RSF and their allied militias. The official Sudanese government spokesperson issued a statement highlighting the joint forces' valor and repelling, in repelling the attack. The Sudanese armed forces, the police, and the General Intelligence Service and the SPLA North, Al-Hilu, succeeded in repelling an attack launched by the Janjaweed militia on Dilling today at 1 p.m., unquote, the statement read. The spokesperson emphasized that the joint forces seized vehicles, and destroyed others, inflicting heavy losses on the RSF. Attacking force retreated, leaving behind the dead and wounded, the statement added. Social media platforms were abuzz with videos and images capturing the aftermath of the attack. Footage showed hundreds of women and children fleeing the city amidst the sounds of shelling and gunfire. And finally... Uh, in the West African state of Cameroon, Cameroon received its first consignment of a malaria vaccine. Cameroon will introduce the malaria vaccine on the 22nd of January. According to the Manuda Malashi, the country's minister of public health, the move is part of concentrated efforts to enhance the fight against malaria and reduce morbidity and mortality associated with the disease. The minister said in a statement released uh, on Monday night, the selected vaccine, the Mas Correct RTS, has been chosen by the country based on its pre-qualification, ensuring guaranteed quality, efficacy, and safety for its inclusion in the vaccination programs, he said. The vaccine will be offered in both public and private health facilities across 42 
health districts, the vaccine provided for children are safe, free, and effective. Cameroon took delivery in November last year of 331,200 doses of malaria vaccines, the first consignment to arrive in the Central African country. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's for the Pan-African Radio Network, which uh, airs the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Oh, boy. 
The voice of Alice Clark uh, from New York City, and that track was entitled Keep It Hid. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. The Republic of South Africa under the ANC-led government uh, has filed a lawsuit uh, against uh, the state of Israel uh, in uh, the International uh, Court of Justice, the ICG, the ICJ, and of course uh, that court uh, is an affiliate of the United Nations, the World Court, and of course uh, Ronald Lamola, uh, who is the Minister of Justice uh, for uh, the ANC government, uh, was the Lead counsel uh, in the suit uh, earlier today. Uh, let's listen to a briefing uh, from South Africa on this case that has filed just uh, several hours ago in the Netherlands. Minister of Justice Ronald Lamola, Lamola is uh, um, going to be addressing the media following uh, the conclusion of those court proceedings. He is outside The Hague. There you see him there. And uh, we will be going to him as, as soon as he begins uh, his proceedings. Of course, uh, South Africa having concluded its presentation before the International Court of Justice. Let's listen in. Department of International Relations. And behind him is the Director General for the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development. And to my right is our Ambassador, um, our Ambassador to the Netherlands. And we're also joined by our Palestinian friends. Over to you, Minister Lamola. Thank you very much. The government of the Republic of South Africa, led by His Excellency President Matamela Sir Ramaphosa, entrusted me with representing its commitment to the rule of a just law and to confirm and assert a universally rule-based society and the respect for human rights and specifically the rights of the Palestinian people to sovereignty, to peace and to life. We want firstly to thank our excellent legal team for an able presentation at the court. We also want to thank the court for granting the government of the Republic of South Africa an opportunity to present its case in real time. We hope that this decision will also be impactful to the people of Gaza and Palestine in general. Since the advent of our democracy in 1994, South Africa's foreign policy has been based on what our forebears inscribed in the Freedom Charter in 1955 when they declared that South Africa shall be a fully independent state with respect the rights and the sovereignty of all nations. South Africa shall strive to maintain world peace and the settlement of all international disputes by negotiations and not war. Close quote. South Africa has supported various resolutions of the United Nations and other international solutions to support a just and a lasting solution that will bring peace to the Palestinians and Israelis alike. Working together with the international community and in alignment with the relevant UN resolutions and international law, South Africa seeks to ensure a lasting and a durable peace that produces a viable, contiguous Palestinian state, coexisting side by side in peace with Israel within the 1967 international recognized borders with East Jerusalem as its capital. Our president has called for a ceasefire and humanitarian interventions on numerous occasions. Our foreign policy is aimed at improving the well-being, safety and prosperity of all citizens 
and the achievements of a better Africa and, and the world. The key pillars of our foreign policy include the promotion of human rights, peace and stability, and the strengthening of trade and investment ties with other countries. The world has watched in horror as Palestinian men, women and children were slaughtered, blown up, buried alive under the rubble of their homes, left to die painful deaths in unresourced hospitals, resulting in over 23,000 deaths through destruction to homes, schools, hospitals, water, treatment plants and other public infrastructure that impairs the conditions of life and is calculated to bring about the destruction in whole or in part of the Palestinians living in Gaza. South Africa has unequivocally condemned the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October and it has also done so and is not verbal to the state of Israel conveying its condemnation of that action of, of Hamas on the 7th of October. And South Africa has reiterated here in court that, that those atrocities are no justification for any form of genocide. With the recent escalation of the aggression of Israel in Gaza, South Africa has supported a number of UN resolutions calling for immediate ceasefire and the provision of humanitarian aid to the people of Palestine. Sadly, the world has not succeeded in stopping the genocide that is currently unfolding in Gaza. The international community has largely remained passive in response to these atrocities. Women and children in areas such as refugee camps, schools and hospitals have been targeted, leading to a humanitarian crisis. We also unequivocally call the United Nations Secretary General invoked a rarely used article of the UN Charter, Article 99. The Secretary General Antonio Guterres on the 6th of December 2023 called on the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza and unite in a call for a full humanitarian ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinian militants. This plea of Ubuntu, a plea for humanity of the international community to prevail, was simply ignored. Israel's institutional impunity was reinforced. In keeping with our obligation as a state party to the Genocide Convention, our government has approached the International Court of Justice to prevent the unfolding genocide in Gaza. We have also asked for provisional measures which include an immediate suspension of Israel's military operations in and against Gaza. The commitment to justice and bring an end to the humanitarian atrocities in Palestine resonate deeply with the collective consciousness of the global community. The scale of these actions is reminiscent of the Rwandan genocide 30 years ago. We are here on behalf of South Africa and the global community to seek justice for the victims, particularly children, women, and the elderly. We believe that without the intervention of this court, of the international community, we will see the total destruction of the Palestinian people in Gaza. Remaining silence in the efficacy of this and in and of itself will be a gross violation of international law. As a state party to the Genocide Convention, we have a duty to prevent genocide. We are seeking the court to intervene and stop the ongoing massacre in Gaza. Today it is common cause that the Rwandan genocide could have been prevented. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan expressed this regret when he said, and I quote, the international community failed Rwanda and that must leave us always with a sense of bitter regret and abiding sorrow. Close quote. Rwanda stands out as a stem and severe rebuke to all of us for having failed for, for the international community having failed to prevent it from happening. 
Let us not have it live with the same regret when it comes to Palestine. This case presents the court with an opportunity to act in real time to prevent genocide from continuing in Gaza by issuing an urgent injunction. South Africa is multifaceted, multicultural and a multiracial country that embraces the concept of Ubuntu as a way of defining who we are and how we relate to others. Ubuntu means I am because you are. I am because Hamza Abdullah is. You are because Dunaab Mozen is. The philosophy of Ubuntu means humanity and is reflected in the idea that we affirm our humanity when we affirm the humanity of others. It has played a major role in the forging of South African national consciousness and in the process of its democratic transformation and nation building. Our history is one of repression and violence, human rights abuses, apartheid as a crime against humanity, discrimination and distrust between people born on the same soil. This history enjoins us to stand in principle in solidarity with the people of Palestine, as of our founding father would have wanted us to do, Nelson Mandela. Because our history is one marked by crimes against humanity, the recent horrific scenes of the city of Gaza being transformed into mass burial ground, haunt of our minds. The alarming sight of jubilant armed forces rejoicing to the chance who are finishing off Gaza is an act among several others that warrant a thorough examination by this honorable court. The ways of Israel ministries, Israel members of parliament, the generals of the army, speeches such as cooling people of Palestine, human animals, shows a clear statement of intent to wipe out the Palestinian people out of Gaza. The UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination stated that such language is an incitement to genocide and underscored the importance of preventing genocide by all state parties. As a signatory to the Convention, we also have a duty to bring this matter to the court's attention and to stop genocide. The actions taken by Israel against Palestinians are considered by many state parties, including the state of Palestine itself, to be in breach of the Convention. Palestine has expressed grave concerns over the international system's incapability to prevent acts of genocide against its people and has urgently called for an action to hold such acts. The uncompromising enforcement of the rule of law must be used to seize the ongoing atrocities in Gaza. This case also is about the assertion and the affirmation of the international rule of law and to end exceptionalism when it comes to the state of Israel. Our distinguished legal team has expanded on our case in the, honor of, in the court. We want to conclude with the words of Martin Luther King when he said, and I quote, the arch of the moral of the universe is long, always bending towards justice. We believe justice will prevail in this court. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Can you tell us what difference you think this case will make on the ground in Gaza? Okay. It will make a huge difference the fact that the state of Israel is held to account by the international community. The soldiers, they know, the authorities in Israel, they know that if they continue, they may one day be called even before the ICC individually and be held accountable. So the message is clear, they must cease, they must desist from the act of genocide. Mr. Minister, how confident are you that the court will actually pronounce these uh, provisional measures against Israel? Obviously, we cannot um, want to um, 
overtake the court's role and also second guess the court. We believe that we have, prevent, we have presented a compelling case, facts, and uh, the law, international law. There is peer jurisprudence with regards to the case and the facts that we have presented. We have presented. As you have heard, our lawyers have also quoted uh, extensively on international jurisprudence. That is, what, that, is where, that is where we stand on, and um, we will continue to allow the court to examine the facts and come up with the verdict. It's not for us to pronounce on behalf of the court. Minister, there's often a statement made by many countries, particularly those who are sympathetic to Israel, uh, that uh, those Western powers who are sympathetic to Israel are likely going to punish South Africa. What is South Africa's position in relation to perhaps a fallout that is likely going to ensue? Thank you, Sophie. I will take that question. Um, we have engaged with many of the countries that you've mentioned. Many of them understand that we take diametrically different positions to them. Our position is on, on Palestine, as the ministers pointed out, and as our legal team has pointed out, is based on principle. So we can defend our position with all of them. And in fact, we're doing this in, in the interest of securing justice for Palestinians, but it's also to ensure that international law, as you pointed out, is implemented fairly and also evenly, and that is in the interest of preserving international law for all. Minister. Zane Dango, Director, Director General of International Cooperation. Minister, 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 Minister do you, do you recognize any responsibility by Hamas to the situation happening now in Gaza? <coughs> As um, we have said in court, we have condemned the action of Hamas on the 7th of October, and um, we have done so also through a note verbal to the State of Israel. Minister, is it a matter of days or a few weeks? Or when do you speak that? Yeah, obviously we, 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 we want to not to, to preempt the court, not to put unnecessary pressure on the court, but we believe the court has heard our side, they understand the agency, and they will deliver the, the verdict within reasonable time. Minister, you know, we, we have presented a case here, um, uh, on behalf um, of the government of the Republic of South Africa and we are doing so on behalf of a number of Palestinians young kids, women and the elderly that are being um, uh, killed in, um, in, um, in, in Gaza it is, it, we are not presenting any case on behalf of Hamas so that statement is baseless that statement has got no merit we, we do not have any mandate from, from Hamas. Our mandate is from the South African government, and um, our case also is not against the Jews as a people. Our case is against the actions of the State of Israel, the actions of genocide that are committed in Gaza. In South Africa, we have got a number of Jewish people doing business, living with us, and uh, they also attend their churches in peace. So the case is about the State of Israel, it's not about the Jewish people as a community. You have no contact with Hamas people at all? In African Union or in Asian countries? Or Latin yeah, America? you have already asked the question. Carlos, Israel says you're playing politics with this, and it has a right to self-defense. What's your response? 
This is, a, is the highest organ of the UN. I think it will be an insult to the court uh, to say that the court granting us an opportunity to present our compelling case that all of you have seen, citing international law, providing facts, and citing the relevant articles of the convention, Article 1 of the convention, and a number of um, UN conventions that the court um, has been presented with. So we have presented a compelling legal argument. This is not politics. We are expecting the court to pronounce on the facts and on the law. And what should that be? Uh, did you? So, as, as uh, obviously, currently our diplomatic relations is not normal. You've seen that we have recalled our ambassadors from. From, from from Israel and Israel has also recalled the ambassador from South Africa. Yes, and we've also recalled our entire team. Um, in, in essence, what we are saying is that the, we will wait for the outcome of this court case, but also for the for for justice to be found within Palestine, and we hope that after that we can engage with with Israel as with other stakeholders towards a just and lasting peace for both Palestinians and Israelis. So you will decide on the fate of the relations after the court uh, issues. I think we'll be able to engage with our relations a lot more openly after the court case has been concluded. And Minister, what if the court doesn't agree with you? Would that lead to South Africa questioning this system itself? Yeah, we, we are here to assert the international rule of law. This is the highest organ of the, of the UN. We, want, we believe that the judges are professionals. We are cognizant of the reality of, a, of an international court in this jurisdiction and how it functions. But they have taken an oath and we want to give them the, 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 the benefit of a doubt that they will be able to exercise professionally. Um, and that's why we presented the case, uh, citing facts, citing jurisprudence, citing the necessary conventions of the UN. But Minister, do you honestly believe that the Israelis want to wipe out the Palestinians of Gaza? Do you personally believe that? Yes, we do. Do you have any contact with Hamas people at any point? I want to say a statement. Well, go ahead. Uh, well, first of all, I think the facts uh, speak for themselves. What Israel is doing in, in Gaza Strip is obvious based on fact and law that they are wiping the people of Gaza and forcibly and putting the population there in conditions that will lead to their demise. Allow me to say a few words in Arabic uh, on behalf of the state of Palestine and then uh, to, to make a short statement also in English. Uh, دولة فلسطين تثمن عاليا وتقدر وتدعم بلا تحفظ الخطوة التاريخية التي أقدمت عليها جنوب أفريقيا تنفيذا لالتزاماتها بموجب اتفاقية منع الإبادة الجماعية والمعاقبة عليها وتحريكها لدعوة ضد إسرائيل السلطة القائمة بالاحتلال نتيجة حرب الإبادة الجماعية التي ترتكبها ضد الشعب الفلسطيني في غزة لقد وضعت النقاشات اليوم المحكمة والتي تقدمت بها جنوب أفريقيا المحكمة والعالم بصورة الجرائم التي ترتكب بحق الشعب الفلسطيني والتي تفضي إلى ارتكاب جريمة الإبادة الجماعية ولكن أيضا في السياق التاريخي الأشمل للقضية الفلسطينية والجرائم التي ترتكب بحق الشعب الفلسطيني بدءا من النكبة والاستعمار 
ونهب أرضه والتمييز العنصري وكل ما إلى ذلك من انتهاكات كانت ترتكبها إسرائيل على مدار 75 عام هذه لحظة تاريخية للشعب الفلسطيني وللإنسانية وكذلك للنظام الدولي المبني على والقائم على القانون نتقدم بالشكر لكل الدول التي ساندت هذا الطلب وندعوها أيضا هذه الخط... ندعوها للقيام واتباع الخطوة الشجاعة التي قامت بها جنوب أفريقيا ودعمها من خلال الدخول في مرحلة النقاشات ال... 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 التي تناقش تفاصيل القضية لاحقا أخيرا نؤكد أن لا أحد لا أحد يمكن له الادعاء بعدم معرفة والجهل بالجرائم التي ترتكبها إسرائيل بحق الشعب الفلسطيني وستواصل القيادة الفلسطينية ودولة فلسطين سعيها لإحقاق الحق الفلسطيني وتنفيذا لكل الحقوق الفلسطينية ومساءلة كل الجرائم التي ارتكبت بحق الشعب الفلسطيني only for Palestine, but for humanity and for the whole international rules-based system. The state of Palestine values and appreciates wholeheartedly the historic action taken by South Africa today at the highest international court. As a party to the Genocide Convention, South Africa has acted in pursuance of its obligations and duty to prevent and punish the crime of genocide by requesting the ICJ to intervene to, to suspend the genocidal war launched by Israel against the Palestinian people in Gaza. Very importantly, the South African oral argument also presented the context in which this genocide is happening, a continuum of Nakba, of colonization, of dispossession, oppression and apartheid that the Palestinian people have been suffering from for the past 75 years. South Africa presents a damning evidence confirming that Palestinian people have suffered and are suffering irreparable harm from Israel's violation of the Genocide Convention. This is a pivotal moment for the international system. South Africa took a bold and proactive step on behalf of humanity to protect the Palestinian people and ensure that the Genocide Convention and international law do not com become completely irrelevant, which is a prospect that must terrify all of us. Nearly 100,000 Palestinians have been killed, disappeared under the rubble and injured by Israel's over the past three months. Israel caused systematic, extensive and deliberate destruction of the foundations of life in Gaza including homes, infrastructure, hospitals, churches, mosques. Israel displaced nearly the entire population and is deliberately starving the population. Israel is destroying the foundations of life in Gaza. We thank all states and intergovernmental organizations who supported this important and historic step by South Africa. We also urgently call on all states to take steps to support South Africa's application. And let me be clear, no one and no one can claim plausible deniability that thanks to at least the 115 colleagues of yours that have been killed by Israel in the course of the three months that passed, 
the Palestinian leadership will not relent until our rights of return, freedom and independence are achieved. Humanity is at crossroads. The case before the ICJ is a test to the international system. It is a moment of naked truth and an opportunity to provide hope to humanity at a time when it's sorely needed. Leaders have a historic responsibility and their actions will be judged by history. Thank you. Welcome back. And that was a media briefing uh, by uh, the South African government and the state of Palestine in the Netherlands, uh, outside The Hague, uh, at the International Court of Justice, where the African National Congress government of South Africa has filed a lawsuit uh, charging genocide under the Genocide Convention against uh, Tel Aviv. We'll continue to cover this story uh, over the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and the Pan-African Newswire. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for uh, this week.
Welcome back, and that was uh, Marsha Hunt uh, with the track entitled Black Flower. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Thursday, uh, January 11th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and right now we want to move into Electronic Intifada. Uh, This is from day 96 of the Siege of Gaza. A panel of experts from Electronic Intifada analyzes and reports on developments uh, inside uh, that beleaguered area of West Asia. Let's listen uh, to Electronic Intifada, Day 96. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 10th. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 96 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We'll have a full news report coming up later in the program. Plus, we'll be joined by novelist Ahmed Massoud in London to talk about the latest situation with his family in Gaza. And of course, we'll have a discussion with John about the dynamics of resistance to the genocide. uh, And we'll analyze the latest videos put out by Palestinian Defense Forces. But first, we take a look at the International Court of Justice. This week, the ICJ is set to hear a South African application under the Genocide Convention accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. Should the application be accepted, the ICJ could issue a temporary injunction on Israel to immediately stop bombing Gaza. In the 84-page application, South Africa claims that, quote, acts and omissions by Israel are genocidal in character as they are committed with the requisite specific intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as part of the broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group, analyzes Marjorie Cohn in Truthout this week. The application adds that, quote, the conduct of Israel through its state organs, state agents, and other persons and entities acting on its instructions or under its direction, control, or influence in relation to Palestinians in Gaza is in violation of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. Cohen adds that, quote, Israel is mounting a full court press to prevent an ICJ finding that it's committing genocide in Gaza. On January 4th, the Israeli Foreign Ministry instructed its embassies to pressure politicians and diplomats in their host countries to make statements opposing South Africa's case at the ICJ. We're honored to be joined now by Michael Link. Michael served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory from 2016 to 2022. Michael is a professor of law at Western University in London, Ontario, and a non-resident fellow at the think tank DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. He joins us to talk about the significance of Israel's genocide at the International Court of Justice. Michael, Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada's live stream. A great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, 
Let's start by having you give us a basic outline of what the ICJ is, how it works, uh, and uh, what are the provisional measures that we're hearing about. Sure. Um, the International Court of Justice is a 15-judge uh, court uh, based in The Hague. Uh, it is the highest court in the United Nations system. Uh, these judges are elected for nine-year terms, um, and they come from different parts of the uh, of the world. There's a geographic um, representation uh, on the court. Um, the court is sometimes uh, confused with the International Criminal Court, which is also in The Hague. The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction under the Rome Statute of, of 1998 to look into war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And that's where the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, is, is anchored. This is the International Court of Justice, and it's, it has several functions. One of them is to uh, determine and adjudicate disputes uh, between member states of the United Nations. And as such, under its, uh, under its charter, um, it can settle or, or adjudicate disputes involving the Genocide Convention of 1948. Um, and both Israel and South Africa are members of the Genocide Convention. Uh, and what South Africa has done in filing its application with the International uh, Court of Justice at the very end of December is saying that we, South Africa, have a responsibility, a universal responsibility, um, to um, to try to prevent genocide wherever and whenever it is occurring. And we think it's occurring now in Israel's operations and uh, military operations in Gaza over the last three months. Therefore, we're coming to you, International Court of Justice, uh, with an application for provisional measures to try to bring this uh, this genocide to a, to a halt immediately. Um, with the prospect of a trial coming uh, several years down the road. Sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the significance of South Africa bringing this case and the complaint being rooted in apartheid analysis? Sure. Let's keep in mind that genocide is deemed to be the crime of crimes. There's a hierarchy of, of crimes at the international level. Genocide is right at the very top of that. And we've seen that obviously through our discussions through the 20th century of a range of, uh, of atrocities that have been accepted as, uh, as genocide um, by the international community. Uh, and presently, we have another uh, case in front of the International Court of Justice where the Gambia, just like South Africa, the Gambia brought a case uh, against uh, Myanmar alleging uh, alleging genocide and saying we have a responsibility to bring this to an end. And the court in that case in 2020 um, issued provisional measures, which are the equivalent of injunctions at the American or Canadian uh, uh, court level, uh, asking for this to be frozen, to be for the uh, acts of genocide to be or alleged genocide to be brought to an end. Uh, while the court prepares for a full trial. A full trial will occur with respect to Myanmar around 2025. If this goes ahead uh, with respect to South Africa's application against Israel, I suspect it would be another three or four years before the full trial would wind up occurring in front of the International Court of Justice. But what South Africa is arguing is that, yes, you know, we're, we're focused on what's going on for the last three months, but also, just like uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, said, you know, uh, this, the events here didn't happen in a vacuum. There are 
there is a long history before October 7th. And, it, and South Africa is raising the issue that we, we have to understand this in the context of 1947 to 1949, 1967, uh, when the uh, Israeli blockade was brought into uh, Gaza in 2007. All of this has to be contextual background, including the issue of apartheid, when we consider what Israel is, uh, is doing now. Um, we have to have a wide aperture in understanding Israel's actions, in particular, that Israel is not, is, is a serial defier of international law. There have been numerous resolutions coming from the UN Security Council, for example, with respect to uh, the illegality of Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem, the illegality of the uh, of the settlements uh, in East Jerusalem and the and the West Bank, uh, the many comments with respect to Israel's uh, human rights violations. So all of this, uh, South Africa is rightly saying, has to be in the mix has to be in the context, and I'm sure this will be argued by the lawyers for South Africa when the hearings begin tomorrow, Thursday, in The Hague. Mm-hmm. And th- those hearings will be broadcast live, and I'll, I'll definitely be watching them, and I know people all, all over the world with will. I have two questions for you, Michael. One is, can we expect the court to take an impartial decision based on the merits of the case, and every uh, person who's, every serious, impartial person who's looked at the case says it's very strong. I'd, I'd like to hear if you agree with that. The second thing is, are these provisional measures enforceable? If the court says at the end of this hearing, or however long it takes, this uh, military action, whether it's genocide or not, must stop pending the court's decision, can they enforce that? What happened in the case of Myanmar? Did the court's prov- uh, ruling provisional measures make any difference? Thank you. Those are both great questions, uh, Ali. Um, the first question is uh, you, uh, you asked goes to, is this an impartial court? And the answer, yes. You know, this is an impartial court, and it has delivered important rulings on the side of an expansive liberal view of, of human rights and international law in the recent past. Consider 2004, 20 years ago, uh, there was an advisory opinion that Palestine urged the General Assembly to ask of the uh, International Court of Justice on the legality of the wall uh, that Israel is, has been, was, and is still constructing through the occupied West Bank. Um, and the court issued a very strong ruling in that case that the location of the wall was illegal. It also said that the settlements are, are illegal and also made comments with respect to the illegal annexation of, of East Jerusalem. And more recently, the court issued an important decision with respect to the Chagos Islands, those small string of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean that um, the United Kingdom separated from Mauritius at the time of Mauritius's independence 60 years ago. And the International Court of Justice, in its ruling several years ago, said that was uh, that was wrong. That was a violation of international law, and it's forced the United Kingdom to negotiate with Mauritius over the uh, over the return of the islands to Mauritian uh, sovereignty. Um, so I'm I think we all should be hopeful and expect that the court will rule as judges will in an impartial fashion, based on the law and the facts in front of it. The second question, Ali, that you Ali that you've mentioned is if the court does does wind up issuing provisional measures with respect to what South Africa is asking, are these enforceable? The answer is um, no in the court of law, yes, hopefully in the court of public opinion. 
you know, there is no um, international law, there is no separate army or police to enforce these orders. And we know that from a long history with respect to Israel's uh, non-compliance with hundreds of UN uh, resolutions and indeed with the order that the court issued 20 years ago on, on the legality or the illegality uh, of the wall. Um, but let's keep in mind this. You know, international law will not liberate Palestine in the end. That's going to have to be a political task between the international civil society pushing the international community to work uh, with, you know, uh, Palestinians fighting against the occupation and against uh, the denial of their rights. But international law combined with international resolve can be a very important uh, tool. And for a country to have an allegation of genocide even provisionally uh, accepted by a, an important court like the ICJ uh, would do great political damage uh, uh, to it. So I'm I guess we have to see this as you would want to see this in the realm of politics, in the realm of uh, activism and civil society as to what the court may wind up delivering. But I want, to add, I want to add just one other thing very quickly. No good lawyer would ever want to say any case which, which is being contested is a slam dunk. You know, Israel will have all of Friday to make arguments. And I suspect the arguments they will make will be, will be twofold. One, They'll argue that October 7th was a human rights catastrophe, um, that it was an atrocity. Uh, and I'm sure they'll be showing slides or videos to the court with respect to uh, what they said happened uh, on October 7th. And therefore, flowing from that, Israel will be arguing self-defense. Um, they'll say that everything they've done is in, is in self-defense after what arose on October 7th, and everything they've done since has been within the, the strict bounds of international law. Now, I, I'm curious to see how what kind of facts they're going to marshal with respect to self-defense uh, with regards to how they've conducted the, uh, the war in claiming that it's, it's not genocidal and it's not, even, it's not even war crimes or crimes against humanity. That's a pretty tall order uh, for Israel to want to make. But we have to keep in mind that there that there's going to be two two arguments, two diametrically opposed arguments made to the court, and this may influence what the court winds up doing. The court could do three things: it could do nothing, which I uh, with respect to the request for provisional measures, I highly doubt they will. That's what they will do. It could make a, a provisional measures order tailored to, to exactly what South Africa is asking for, an end to the conflict. Uh, immediate end and a, and a ceasefire and uh, uh, and to withdraw all of its troops from that and to allow uh, humanitarian aid to enter in uh, in full into the Gaza Strip. The third option is that they could issue a both sidisms provisional measure. One, you know, accepting some or all of what South Africa has said, but also directing uh, an order against uh, Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups uh, in Gaza telling them that they should not be they ha should not be committing genocide uh, as well so it's it's up you know it's up in the air as to what what the court will wind up doing it'll either be number two or number three uh, i suspect um, and i'm saying that as a lawyer that tries to read and understand how this court winds up thinking uh, michael oh go ahead nora oh i was just going to ask about the implications for the u.s uh, in all of this, too, does this ruling or provisional mm -hmm. measures uh, or an injunction have any impact on mm -hmm. the Biden administration? Sure. Again, 
you know, let's think of it as two things, and one one in terms of of law, and one in terms of politics. In terms of law, you know, if the court issued a strong provisional measures um, with respect to there's a there's a there's a prima facie case or a plausible case of genocide that's ongoing that South Africa has made out, then that puts the United States in a in what I think is a good difficult position, given its its high degree of support for uh, Israel's atrocities in the uh, in uh, Gaza, uh, it will mean it will also strengthen the case that has now been filed by the Center for Constitutional uh, Rights in the American courts with respect to trying to end American complicity uh, uh, with with regards to this. Politically, this may be you know that kind of nudge uh, that the United States needs uh, to finally say to Israel, stop. You know, enough is enough. I mean, here we have Anthony Blinken saying, on the one hand, there's far too many civilians have been killed, as he said yesterday in Tel Aviv, by also saying that he thought the South African application was meritless. Um, anybody who said it's meritless has not read the 84 pages. If I can just say one quick thing, this is an extraordinary piece of legal advocacy that the lawyers acting for South Africa put together. I was worried when I heard this was coming, this is going to be a 15 page slapped together uh, application over the Christmas holidays. This is the best single document available, what Israel has been doing over the last three months, and is accessible to non-lawyers. It is an extraordinary document, and the court has to take this seriously. That's hopefully very uh, encouraging. We'll definitely be watching closely. Um, I have two questions. One is from a viewer who wants to know how the judges are selected. I think that reflects a lot of concern given, mm. I suppose, and I, I'd, I'd love for you to comment on this, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which is a separate institution, that's not what we're talking about today, that's a court which brings individual prosecutions mm -hmm. against people. For example, it could bring a prosecution against Benjamin Netanyahu or Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galan. Mm -hmm. The International Court of Justice is not a court that brings cases against individuals. It's a court where states bring cases against other states, if I mm -hmm. have that correctly. Yeah. But Given the fact that the International Criminal Court, and tell me if you agree with this, has been so uh, transparently biased in its dealings with the situation in Palestine, there is a lot of suspicion and concern about whether Palestinians can get anywhere at the ICJ. So I, I think that may be what's behind the question of how are the judges selected. Mm -hmm. And the other question I have is, can the court, in its provisional measures, say Israel must stop, Hamas must stop, or whatever it might say there, but can it also say to third countries, we also order that third countries cease and desist from aiding and abetting what may or may not be genocide, we haven't decided on that yet, and therefore no arms deliveries and so on. Is that within the court's power? Is it within the realm of possibility? Okay, thanks. Again, great questions. And these have to be, unfortunately, the last questions that I'm, I'm able to answer. Um, uh, first, you've asked generally, how are the judges selected at the ICJ? And you're asking that in the context of, um, you know, will this, will this get a, a fair shake? And, and what is, 
what does that mean in contrast to what's going on at the ICC? The judges are elected by the General Assembly. And, um, uh, and keep in mind, actually, that it's a 15-judge uh, court. Um, five, uh, and they're in rotation of three, uh, that every three years, five judges end their term and, and wind up, uh, wind up leaving. In fact, five of the judges, including the president of the court, an American, jo- Joan Donahue, um, are leaving the court at the very beginning of February. So that's why I suspect that this current court, uh, will want to have the provisional measures issued by the end of January or the very beginning of February while the, the present composition of the court uh, is there. You're right, Ali. The, the, um, I guess the, the job description of the International Court of Justice is to decide and adjudicate disputes between countries as well as, um, uh, as well as, uh, decide issues involving advisory opinions being asked uh, by the General Assembly to the court. And keep in mind, there is an advisory opinion uh, that's been put to the court uh, that will be heard the middle of next month in February um, with respect to whether or not the occupation is illegal. And one of the arguments being uh, the question of, of apartheid. Does that make what Israel has been doing over the last while uh, illegal? Uh, so I, I don't want to lose focus of that uh, hearing either. What impact might this have with respect to the ICC? I share the concerns behind your question, Ali, with respect to how glacial the ICC's prosecutor's office has been moving over the last nine years since the first application was put to it in January of 2015 um, on the question of uh, the situation in, in Palestine. I would hope that the that the 84-page uh, application by South Africa uh, is now in front of the on the desk of the prosecutor of the ICC, because genocide obviously is one of the issues that the ICC has jurisdiction over. And I can only imagine that this will be pushed by civil society and by other countries, including South Africa, at the ICC with respect to this. The pressure, um, I'm sure, is, is getting close to being unbearable on the uh, on the present prosecutor in terms of showing much more dynamism and much more neutrality on this issue than he and his predecessors have shown uh, to date. You've also asked me with respect to provisional measures and whether or not that would uh, include uh, an order to other countries. I'm not aware, um, because I haven't thought of it, whether or not the provisional measures asked by South Africa include um, a demand with respect to other countries. But if, if there is a plausible case of genocide that's reflected in the provisional measures order by South Africa, that would put increasing pressure on those countries that are supporting Israel, uh, either diplomatically or more importantly, militarily, uh, to be able to review and rethink with respect to this. So let's hope that we, what, what we wind up getting is a, is a dynamic provisional measures order that allows, that puts pressure on these countries with respect to the support they've been giving Israel and gives an additional tool to civil society uh, to press you know, for an end to arms sales to, uh, to Israel, uh, and an end, obviously, to as soon as possible to the occupation and to the denial of human rights. Michael Link, we appreciate you so much for coming on the live stream. We'd love to have you back on, uh, perhaps after the ICJ um, hearings. <laughs> um, and uh, we look forward uh, to reading your analysis, which I know Um, You'll be writing after this as well. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. 
And thank you very much for, for asking me, and thank you very much for the for the indispensable work that the uh, electronic Intifada winds up doing. Thank you, thank so, you so much, much. Michael. Thanks. Um, and we're now going to turn to a quick summary of some of the latest news from Gaza and the West Bank this week, and then we'll go to our next guest, Ahmed Masood, uh, and a special segment from Ali, and then, of course, um, videos with John. Gaza has become a place of death and despair, stated United Nations Human Rights Chief Martin Griffiths on January 5th. He said, quote, a public health disaster is unfolding. Infectious diseases are spreading in overcrowded shelters as sewers spill over. Some 180 Palestinian women are giving birth daily amidst this chaos. People are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded. Famine is around the corner. Griffiths added, quote, for children in particular, the past 12 weeks have been traumatic. No food, no water, no school, nothing but the terrifying sounds of war day in and day out. Quote, Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on. That was the recent statement of UN Human Rights Chief Martin Griffiths. Meanwhile, Israel claims that it has entered a third and, quote, more targeted phase of its military campaign in Gaza, reports our, our colleague Maureen Murphy. But so far, she writes that that has yielded little change for Palestinians after more than three months of relentless bombardment and repeated displacement. Maureen adds that, quote, as the U.S. Secretary of State met with Washington's allies in the region, Israel increased its attacks around hospitals in central and southern Gaza. The Palestinian Health Ministry said early Tuesday that 126 people had been killed over the past 24 hours, with 57 bodies and 65 injured people brought to Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Deir al-Balah in central Gaza, where Israel has been intensifying its operations after laying waste to the north. More than 23,210 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, according to the health ministry. This morning, Israeli occupation forces shelled the entrance of Al-Aqsa Hospital, killing dozens, including journalist Ahmad Badir. The World Health Organization's Director General is warning of a catastrophic situation in hospitals across Gaza, especially at the Al-Aqsa Hospital, which has been the only functioning hospital in the central area. At Al-Aqsa, WHO staff, quote, saw sickening scenes of people of all ages being treated on blood-streaked floors and in chaotic corridors. An un Unidentified child lay dead, partially covered by a sheet on a bed. Others, other injured were prostrate on the floor, being stepped over by the health staff and families. A man's har harrowing groans, either from pain or anguish, cut through the emergency ward's commotion. The WHO's Director General added that, quote, no hospitals are fully functioning in northern Gaza, where another WHO mission was canceled due to dangers and lack of necessary permissions. Elsewhere in Gaza, a mere handful of health facilities operate. Quote, the bloodbath in Gaza must end, he said. This is Sean Casey, I mean, uh, WHO. 
hospitals in the middle area of Gaza, the middle part of the Gaza Strip, in the emergency department where they're treating children, several children on the floor and on a gurney behind me, doctors calling out for a scalpel and chest tube. Um, many people coming in from an explosion. There's one child who unfortunately passed away whose body is not identified. And, and it's, as you can see, a chaotic scene. Uh, unfortunately, this area uh, is close to an area that was uh, evacuated yesterday. An evacuation order was issued. And um, they've lost a lot of their staff. Uh, this hospital is currently operating with about 30% of the staff that it had just a few days ago. Um, they are seeing, in some cases, hundreds of casualties every day in a small emergency department. Uh, yesterday they said they had one doctor working overnight in this emergency department with hundreds, in some cases, of casualties coming in on a daily basis. So they're treating children on the floor. As you can see behind me, the floor is actually covered in blood. Um, there are patients coming in every few minutes, um, and it's, it's really a chaotic scene. The hospital director just spoke to us, and he said his one request is that this hospital be protected, even though many of his staff have left, even though this hospital is under enormous pressure. The one request that the hospital director said is that the international community needs to make sure that this hospital and other hospitals like it stay protected, that they not get struck, that they not get evacuated, that they're able to continue functioning. That's the critical message for today. Even though this hospital is under enormous strain, even though there's a small child being treated on the floor behind me, what they're asking for is protection for health facilities, for the international community to make sure that this place remains safe. That was Sean Casey of the WHO speaking yesterday. Uh, and as I said, today, uh, Israeli forces shelled the entrance to the hospital. Meanwhile, the United Nations announced that, quote, all children under five, 335,000 children, are at high risk of severe malnutrition and preventable death as the risk of famine conditions continues to increase. A doctor told the UK Telegraph that rising hun hunger is turning children into skeletons and are at risk of irreversible stunting of physical and cognitive growth. According to the Telegraph, quote, the conflict has damaged or destroyed essential water, sanitation, and health systems in the Gaza Strip, hindering the ability to treat severe malnutrition, while access to infant formula has been extremely difficult due to restrictions on aid flow. Quote, children under six months of age face the highest risk of death if malnourished, and prenatal babies can even be affected in the womb if their mothers are not eating enough food. The Israeli human rights group Bet Salem said that the acute food, food crisis in Gaza, quote, is not a byproduct of war, but a direct result of Israel's declared policy. This was all from Maureen Murphy's latest report, Israel Closes In on Gaza Hospital During Blinken Visit, which you can find on electronicintifada.net. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli occupation forces have killed at least 21 Palestinians, including three children, since the start of the new year. Nearly half of those killings occurred on a single day, reports my colleague Tamara Nassar. The youngest child killed, Rukaya Ahmed Odejahalin, was only four years old. Rukaya was shot in the back by Israeli forces on January 7th. Quote, while sitting in the back seat of a shared taxi van near an Israeli military checkpoint near the Palestinian village of Beit Iqsa 
in northwest of Jerusalem in the central occupied West Bank, according to documentation collected by Defense for Children International Palestine. According to the human rights group, quote, after Rukaya and her mother drove through the checkpoint, a car driving about 40 meters behind them did not stop for inspection by Israeli forces. Israeli forces opened fire on both vehicles, striking Rukaya in the back. An Israeli military ambulance transported Rukaya and her mother to the checkpoint where Rukaya's father met them. Israeli forces interrogated Rukaya's father before allowing him to leave without releasing Rukaya's body. The people traveling in the other car were a husband and wife whose vehicle veered toward the soldiers, lightly wounding two of them. Israeli soldiers began firing at the car even though it's even after it stopped killing the couple, 37-year-old Mohammed Abu Aid and his wife Doha, uh, who are 31, as well as Rukaya. Meanwhile, in shocking footage on Tuesday, Tamara writes, an Israeli armored vehicle ran over a Palestinian man lying on the ground after he was shot by Israeli troops during an invasion of Taba, a town northeast of Tulkarim. We won't show you that footage right now but it is in Tamara's report as it was widely circulated by local and international media. For nearly two continuous days on January 2nd, the Israeli military carried out a raid on Nur Shams refugee camp. Airstrikes by Israeli occupation forces destroyed roads, infrastructure, and private and public po- property. The Nur Shams camp is just like Gaza, a local healthcare worker told the Electronic Intifada. Destruction, houses exploded, destroyed, people get hit and beaten by soldiers, arrested. Although it is getting less attention given the much larger scale of its genocide in Gaza, Israel appears to be acting with similar destructiveness and brutality in the West Bank, reports Tamara. Israeli forces interrogated about 500 Palestinians in the refugee camp during the raid, including women and children. Soldiers then transferred about 150 of those had interrogated to military camps and detained 20 of them. Tamara also reports that Palestinian resistance fighters, quote, set off an explosive device destroying an Israeli armored vehicle during an Israeli incursion into Jenin and its refugee camp on Sunday, killing one member of Israel's paramilitary border police. An armed group associated with Islamic Jihad's Janine Brigades carried out the attack, according to video shared by Sarai al-Quds, the military arm of the group. Finally, Israeli occupation forces stormed the western area of the village of Azun in a raid on January 2nd, while armed Palestinians fought back against the Israeli attackers. Tamara Nassar reports that Israeli troops fired live ammunition, sun grenades, and tear gas canisters at Palestinians, killing four youths aged 18 to 26. Israel withheld their bodies, uh, withholding the remains of Palestinians killed during what it claims were attacks, intending to use them as bargaining chips in negotiations. Israeli occupation forces continue to invade Azun in the following days. And for more on the latest news from the occupied West Bank, read my colleague Tamara Nassar's latest report, Israel Steps Up West Bank Violence, Killings in New Year, on electronicintifada.net. Well, um, with that, that was a particularly hard news update um, to report on. Uh, but uh, Ali, we have sort of a palate cleanser. Oh no, we're actually gonna go to Ahmed um, and then we'll do a palate cleanser after all of that. We need it. Um, 
Ahmed Masood is a novelist, uh, joins us from London. Ahmed, it's so good to have you back with us. Uh, we always wish it were under better circumstances, but thank you for joining us again on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, everybody. Yes, I agree. I wish it was better circumstances for sure. Yeah. Hi, Ahmed. Thank you for coming, hey. for joining us. Hi, Ali. Hi, Asa. Hi, John. Um, you know, just reading your tweets over the last several weeks, um, you've been trying to figure out um, how, you know, your family is able to find safety in Gaza. Can you give us an update on your family right now and, and what they're going through at this moment? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been incredibly difficult. Um, it got worse, actually, since uh, the humanitarian pause that we had because my mum left the north and went to the south um, along with two, uh, three of my siblings. Um, and I actually heard today, like just today, I heard that she is now in a tent somewhere in open land um, in the Mawasi area, which is by the beach. Um, a tent made out of plastic, uh, incredibly cold, uh, doesn't have enough blankets and um, my sister messaged and said that she was crying a lot and it just broke my heart really. Because the start when she moved to my uncle's house in the south in Khan Yunis. Um but then they had to leave because they had evacuation orders, um, leaflets dropped on them from the Israeli army, uh, so they, they left to Al Mawasi area, which is by the beach. Um, so, so can you imagine this open, bare land with nothing in it, uh, right on the beach? Uh, and I, th I think you know the area, and I think you may have seen sort of pictures of it. There's absolutely nothing in there. Um, so it's really sad to, to, to hear that, um, and really stressful as well, because just knowing that if a bomb won't kill, kill them, I think the cold and the weather and the illness that they will develop will for sure. And my mum is old and tired and has got so many health complications as well. Um, the rest of the family are in the north, uh, they're still in Jabalia camp, um, and they are, in a way, kind of the situation sort of reversed a little bit in there where sort of the, the actual tanks have kind of withdraw, withdrew from Jabalia camp, um, but it is like um, continuous bombing and, 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 and um, the, these new things that came up in this war which are called quad captors. I don't know if you've heard about them. The quad captors are yeah. some sort of robot that basically is like a drone. It's a mixture between a drone and a helicopter. And it basically just goes and shoots people and, and attacks non-stop. Uh, it's very, very random as well. Um, it's very, very hard to get in touch with my brother and sister who are still in Jabalia camp. Um, the last time I heard from them was two days ago, and I haven't had any news from them. Uh, they have barely any access to food uh, or water. My brother's house was destroyed completely. My sister's house was destroyed completely. So they're in a difficult position because not only they can't find food or water, but also they can't even find clothes to wear. Um, in a sense, it's, it's cold now. They've lost their home, so they can't go back and, and pick up stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but I tweeted uh, a number of videos from my niece and uh, my brother himself just inspecting his house. And there was a, 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 a touching moment where my niece was just pulling her toy out of, of, the, of the rubble, which was really heartbreaking, to be honest with you. I can't even imagine. Ahmed, listening to you, uh, it, it's unbearable thinking about your mother. I remember last time 
we spoke in November, you talked about how your brother was asking you whether or not to evacuate and turning to you for advice because mm -hmm. people just don't know what to do in that situation. And you also spoke about your the difficulty your mother would have moving uh, just physically. Um, and in the one sense, I'm glad to hear that she got somewhere else. Uh, it's utterly appalling. Uh, you know, I just think of if my own mother, if any of our mothers were in those circumstances and how unbearable this all is. But just to think also that your story, which is so difficult and so horrifying and so overwhelming, is the story of millions of people that literally everyone in Gaza is going through something just as bad, if not worse. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the thing that I, I think is just impossible to, to, to wrap our heads around and that this is going on and on and on, that it's been going mm -hmm. on. Now we're in the fourth month mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. there's no moving mm -hmm. on from it because the horror has, has, is only getting worse for people in Gaza. That's right, yes. And, you know, there are, the, the, the more we get deeper in this, the more complications are coming out uh, of, you know, obviously winter is biting. You know, in the next couple of days, we're expecting to have a sort of a low pressure hitting the, the entire region and, and Gaza will be, you know, affected a lot. Um, there are the complications, obviously, of uh, not just the food and water, but also, you know, people lost touch with dear ones. You know, they haven't had communication with them for some of them for weeks and weeks. They don't know what is happening and what has happened to, to, their, to their loved ones. I heard today from a friend uh, whose uh, cousin had a heart attack um, and died because she hadn't, hadn't heard from her children for about four weeks. Those stories that are never going to be reported, you know, those stories that actually will be, in, you know, ingrained in our sort of memories forever, but they'll never be reported because they're not a direct casualty of war. She died because of a heart attack because she can't get hold of her children. Um, my own sister, um, she's in the south. She made it to the south, and um, her kids are still in the north because she is separated from her husband. She doesn't, she doesn't, she has no news uh, from them whatsoever, and they're, they're very young. Um, and, and I asked her today, and I was really worried about her answer, but she has no idea at all. Um, even until now, it, it continues for me personally. So my brother today was asking me about the news. So I have to connect everybody together. I have family in the north. I have family in the middle. I have family in the south. They have no communication with each other. It's, it's very rare. I spend a lot of time trying to kind of work out e-sims for them. Uh, one of my nephew or niece um, manages to connect for a bit, and then it disconnects. And it's, it's been an absolute challenge from that perspective. And then I think the worst part is that you just don't know. You just don't know what is going to happen in the next hour or two or days or, 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 or a complete blackout and you don't know how you're going to come out on the, on the other side, to be honest with you. Um, and yeah, and I think so many other complications that nobody, still nobody knows what they're going to be um, as things unfold and continue uh, to happen. You know, a couple of my nieces, uh, they're studying to be doctors. Um, their university has been completely destroyed, you know. Um, so I've been asking them, like, can you send me your papers so I can try and find you a place somewhere else, you know, maybe apply for a scholarship for you and I can try and help. 
Um, they can't even log, it, log in to get to their details, to get their papers. You know, there's nothing to prove that they actually, my niece, one of my niece is a fourth year medical student at Al-Azhar University, which has completely been destroyed. The, the, the online server doesn't work. You know, all of these little details that are not, of course, so important in the grand scheme of things. It's not a massive casualty, but it's a, it's a life being destroyed altogether, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and what else is happening to other people as well and all of those different stories that we will never hear about either. Yeah. We wanted to um, play for our viewers and listeners uh, one of those videos that you put on your Twitter of your family members. So let's go to that. This is your niece, Ahmed? That's right. Her name is Aya. She's uh, nine years old. No, wait, 11, sorry. <laughs> and and you, can, you can hear the sound of the drones in the background there. It never goes away. No. She found a stuffed animal under the rubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is in Jabalia? That's in Jabalia, that's right. That's her house where I stayed in many times. Um, and that's her sister, Hiyam, my niece. And that's my brother, Khaled. Um, yeah, and he lost so much weight. I mean, just looking at him like this. And you can hear the drone, and in a bit you'll hear all the bombing, which is very close. And, and were they, did they... Uh stay in Jabalia or, or did they leave and then come back? What, what? No, they stayed in Jabalia. Nobody could go back. There's no way of going back. Um, I don't know if you remember during the... I don't know if you heard that bomb going off, but um, during the humanitarian pause uh, that lasted for a week, some people tried to go back from the south to the north, but they were shot uh, on Salahuddin Street. Um, so nobody who has left to the south is able to go back at all. Israel doesn't allow it. Um, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask Ahmed if you have a sense of, of how many people stayed in Jabalia because Israel is always trying to claim that, you know, everyone left the north. And of course, you know, a lot of people did, but a lot of people did stay. Do you have a sense of how many stayed? Were your family exceptional, or, or was this more common? No, no. I mean, I think the what I'm hearing from my own brother, and um, I've got another cousin um, who's quite active, actually, in the kind of community, helping out in the community, going to uh, uh, schools and, and, and refugee centres. And um, the estimate is 400,000 people stayed in the north. That's what uh, everybody's saying. That's from my brother and my cousin, but also from the official stats that uh, are coming out um, from Gaza as well. Uh, at the moment, the estimation is that it's about 1.9 million people are in the south, um, sort of like from the middle onwards, from the Fayrat onwards, um, and then about 400k uh, left in, in Gaza. Um, sorry, go. Yeah, and, and uh, Ahmed, of course, hunger, starvation in some cases, uh, no clean water, no fuel, no medicine, uh, collapsed health care system. That's the case across Gaza. But mm-hmm. it would seem to me that 
the situation would be particularly dire in the north because Israel has divided Gaza from north to south. How are people managing to meet basic needs? You said you, your brother looks like he's lost a lot of weight. People obviously mm -hmm. aren't eating what they should be. But how are they finding ways to cope at all? What are you learning about that? So there's a lot, uh, well, two things. One, um, somehow uh, there, is, there is a bit of water and like, um, some supplies are coming, but very, very basic. And those supplies are some aid supplies that somehow came in from the south. Um, and, and, and also places that storage, like, you know, like warehouses and things like that, that haven't been bombed. Um, what my brother told me was like a lot of it is canned food, uh, like canned sardines and things like that. Um, that people are sort of buying from the market, but they're incredibly, incredibly expensive. And people have also, the other problem is that uh, people have run out of cash, so they can't even get cash out of cash machines. There are no cash machines. I can't even send money to them right now in, in the north or even in the south, to be honest with you. It's, it's incredibly hard. I'm desperate to send money to them uh, to help them out, um, but they can't get that money uh, physically. So people are getting together as a sense of community. So if you've got somebody on the street, um, so my brother has moved somewhere else now, uh, and there's kind of a sense of community where they find like a sack of flour, they, they bake bread for the whole street and distribute it. Um, you get a couple of cans from the market that came in through a, uh, an, an aid truck or, or something like that. Uh, somebody buys it and, and cooks in like a big stew uh, and distributes it. Um, water is very, very, very challenging. So my brother tells me he has to leave at 5 a.m. every morning under the sound of drones and bullets and bombs, etc., and queue up. There is only one pump, so like there's a well, somebody's got a well in there and there's a pump in there and they have to queue up for hours and hours until they, they get the water. So that is how they're surviving uh, at the moment. But so far, there's been nothing really. I mean, Jabalia town itself, not Jabalia camp, but Jabalia town, um, it is farmland. So there's quite a bit of, of um, well, there are a lot of farms in there. Um, so there's a bit of agriculture in there. Of course, a lot of it was damaged and destroyed uh, already, but there are a bit of pockets of sort of some vegetation still going on, um, and like some tomatoes, potatoes, and things like that, you know. Well, not, not tomatoes now because it's winter, but um, more kind of winter vegetables and roots vegetables, um, I suppose. But that's, yeah, you know, kind of trying hard to make do with what they can at the moment. Hmm. Uh, and and I mean, what about like medical care? I, you know, your your mother is uh, in a plastic tent in Mawasi, you know, kind of vulnerable to the elements. Um, it's get you know, you talked about how it's getting cold. Is there any sort of um, medical care that she or your other family members are able to receive? There is none, unfortunately. My niece, my very young niece, another niece, um, she is about one and a half years old. Uh, she's had a fever for about a week and you can't even get uh, painkillers. Um, just forget it. Like you don't, you don't even try. You don't even go to hospital or, or, or a doctor or anything because they're full, they're crowded. So in Khan Yunis, uh, the only hospital uh, left there is Nasser Hospital, um, and that is really crowded now with injuries and casualties, so people don't don't go at all. And also now the 
the issue now Israel has attacked so many hospitals, those places have become dangerous places. So people try to avoid them naturally. And I think that's what they wanted in the first place. So where before hospitals were kind of a safe haven in a sense, um, now they've become dangerous places and people are trying to, to, um, to avoid them. They, they've attacked the hospital today in, the, in Dar al-Balah. I don't know if you heard about it, Shuhada um, al-Aqsa. Yeah. So it's really, really difficult. Um, yeah, and I think that is a lot of people are practically dying because of that, you know, sort yeah. of developing illnesses and diseases uh, as a result. Um, in the north, there's nothing, you know, there's absolutely nothing um, in terms of medical aid. Um, so there is El Shifa Hospital still in operation, um, but that's in Gaza City, and you have to think that my family are in Jabalia camp. So Kamal Adwan uh, Hospital was also bombed, so it's operating at the moment with very, very, very limited capacity. Um, and then all the clinics in Jabali were also attacked, and the Honorwa clinics were also attacked. So there is a bit, but only for urgent cases and the, the injured, I suppose. Oh, go ahead, Ali. Yeah. Um, Ahmed, we know from our own experience that communications with Gaza are very difficult that people don't have easy access to the internet or even sometimes to the phone networks. They have to travel uh, long distances sometimes to find internet uh, and then they can use it for a few minutes and then we don't hear from them again sometimes for days. That has got to be particularly difficult when it's your mother, your brothers, mm. your, your close family. My question is, is, do you have a sense from uh, your, your family and people you're in touch with in Gaza of, for example, you said that they can't communicate easily with each other. You're the mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. My question is, how much information do they get about the overall situation, what's happening across Gaza, what's happening militarily, what's happening with the resistance? and what's happening in the outside world. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, they don't. Uh, only yesterday, my brother was asking me to update him with the news, and he was saying, oh, I heard that Blinken is in the region. Uh, has anything happened, etc." So I was actually sending him uh, headlines of what has been happening and all the discussions with uh, around Blinken and his meetings in the Gulf and, and all of these things. He, no, no, they don't. Um, in general, they don't. And I, I, again, I... So I've tweeted about that and I said that, that, that they are the news, but they don't know the news. That's, that's the irony of it, in, in a sense. Um, uh, there are local radios that sort of update in terms of casualties, and so they're still in operation. Um, and there are some of the kind of telegram uh, channels that they follow and I follow as well, and they get some news from there. And what they do is that they sort of walk to a certain area with connection, um, usually like a hospital or something, um, especially if they're in the, in the south, uh, download the news, go and read it, and then get up to date, and then uh, basically come back again a couple of days later when they can. I, I also tweeted another picture of that. My niece went to this area with full of people, it was like so dystopic in a sense of people just wait on their screens um, looking at their pictures and she took that picture to show me uh, because we were trying to work out an eSIM and she was like, come on, hurry up, I have to go, there are so many people, I can't, I can't wait here any longer. Um, and yeah, so it, they are disconnected, but they get some news, I suppose, because they are, once they get the connection, there is plenty of 
uh, journalists still on the ground in, in, in Gaza, even though a lot of them have been targeted and killed, but somehow, you know, there's still more uh, updating with their news channels and telegram channels, and they get those. But often, as I said, they are the news, but they don't know the news because often it's too late. It's, it's out of date because a lot of other things have, have happened since uh, they caught up. Um, but I suppose the kind of wider picture of what is happening and this has been one of the difficult things in terms of the Israeli presence uh, in Gaza as in military tanks. They don't know that. Uh, and there were many cases and incidents where one of my friends' family, for example, tried to go back from Gaza City to Jabalia camp, and they got shot on, on the way because they thought that it's safe and the Israelis have left, etc. And then, But they didn't know. They just don't know. Um, yeah, I think... I, 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 I feel like we need a, a live app tracker of the Israeli tanks or, or, or where they are because at the moment in the north they withdraw but they come back any minute, you know. And like I said, there, is, there are the quad captures and the drones so they're constantly monitoring the, the entire region and they can shoot at anybody. Uh, so that's been the really most dangerous uh, thing for people not knowing where the Israeli tanks are and the soldiers and the kind of incursions. One thing I'm seeing someone raising in the comments, but I I wanted to ask you about as well, uh, Ahmed, is the stories that uh, Egypt is, or Egyptian officials are charging 10,000, sometimes more, $14,000 to allow people out of Gaza. And these are presumably people who have, who, who, can only leave because they have the proper paperwork, whether it's a medical permission or, or, or what have you. And I've we I've heard stories from other people who've who've told us that that's a long-standing issue: the the sort of bribery and corruption and exploitation mm-hmm. of people in this horrifying situation. But for it to be happening during a genocide and for them to be exploiting the situation to to, to to demand even more money, are people talking about that? What what's your reaction to that, and what are you hearing about it? They are talking about it, um, and to be honest, I don't know anybody who used that service uh, at all. If it does, if it does really exist, and if it if if the figures are correct, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. Uh, but like I said, there is, there is a history of exploitation and bribery in, in that uh, regard. You know, um, back in 2009, uh, when the siege was really tight on Gaza, I nearly paid about $700 to get out of Gaza because I was stuck in Gaza. So I couldn't leave, the border closed, and I was there for six months almost. And um, I nearly paid about $700 at that time in 2009. So it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, if that uh, happens. But again, what? this is not official, um, and we must stress that it is not an Egyptian government policy. This is hmm. just, you know, individuals who may be doing this. And I, as I said, I don't know how accurate it is. I think it is likely that it's some individuals who are doing it on their own kind of accords. Um, and again, like that happens naturally in any sort of conflict uh, situation where there are people who will take advantage of others. I think that is that is natural. But there are, I don't think there are any confirmed reports about it that this is actually the process. I, I know that it has. Uh, I, I I remember that our our dear dear friend Rifat 
mm. a couple of years ago had told me that uh, he wanted to leave Gaza uh, for a trip, for a book tour. I don't mm. remember the exact circumstances. And that at that time, uh, it was being demanded of him that he pay thousands of dollars because uh, I think there was some... Uh, you know, asterisk next to his name, let's say, mm. Uh, mm. in the Egyptian uh, database or the wh whoever runs the border. So it's it's mm. it's certainly something that has been an issue for years. But I can understand also that in the current context, there's probably a lot of um, rumors mixed with truth, and it's very hard to untangle uh, one from the other. This is the thing. I mean, that the point is. That is, um, I mean, the Rafah border is one crossing only, and I think we keep forgetting that. Um, Gaza has a minimum of 13 border points with Israel. Um, as an occupying force, Israel has a duty to let people through the border for humanitarian reasons as well. I am not by any means defending Egypt or their policy or position on this. Of course, everybody is to blame in here. The whole international community and how they've kind of stood aside and, and watched, um, watched the genocide happening in Gaza. But also, I think it's always a debate that kind of, um, yeah, conflates things and facts in, in a sense. Because, yes, Egypt is wrong and not opening the border and not pushing for opening it. In fact, they did open it. They kept it open and Israel bombed it. Uh, a number of times, and, and we know that at the beginning. And they reopened it and they bombed it again, and Israel bombed it again. But also Israel has borders with, with Gaza. You can't collectively punish 2.3 million people uh, for whatever reason it is. There are humanitarian issues there. There are people who need to leave for humanitarian reasons, and they should have, and they have a duty to allow them access. Uh, but people just don't don't talk about that, unfortunately, um, and just kind of focus the debate around Egypt and their policies and how they're doing it, uh, etc. So I'm yeah I'm obviously angry if if this if this practice exists and is true, it would make me really really angry. Um, but and I'm sure it exists in some way. But but also I think we need to, to look at the wider picture in there. That actually the real reason is Israel, it's not Egypt. The real reason why people are suffering over there is is, is Israel, not Egypt. Yeah, and I've got a story coming out about uh, someone here in the U.S. who's trying to get their immediate family members out of Gaza, and uh, you know they've been appealing to their elected representatives who are you know, completely just washing their hands of any responsibility, uh, saying that it's the State Department's, um, you know, responsibility. The State Department isn't doing anything. And and so people are, you know, going to go GoFundMe uh, to try and raise money to get their family members out when it should be, they, they shouldn't have to be doing that. It should be, you know, it, it should be open for anybody. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's just um, it's unconscionable. Um, Ahmed, how are you doing personally? You're so far away from your family. You're, you know, work. You must be up at all hours of the night trying to make sure that they're okay and trying to mm -hmm. coordinate eSIMs or, you know, tell them what's going on. When how how are you doing with all of that? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I mean, 
It's not a question I often get asked, to be honest with you, because the first question is, how's your family? And I think that is the right question, I suppose. Um, it's been it's been really difficult, actually. It's been very, very difficult. Um, yeah, I found yesterday, yesterday was very overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming, because what you said, like trying to, what, what I described earlier, trying to help everybody, trying to support everybody, reading the news. You know, I, I have a full-time job, I, you know, the working, family here, like all of that, you know, and just kind of trying to, to uh, stay afloat. Um, yeah, I did, I did tweet at, at some point, and, I, and I, still feel, I still feel the same, that I feel like a, almost a piece of tissue thrown on fire, and it just kind of dances in the smoke a little bit, and at some point it's going to land on that fire and burn, and I think that is still the feeling. Um, I haven't haven't fallen on the flames and burned yet, but I feel it's getting closer and closer every day, to be honest with you. Um, it's it's really tough. Like it's now it's tougher than 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 before. Now hope is disappearing. Um, it's taking longer. More and more things are destroyed. People are dying. I mean, losing Rifat that that you know. I mean, I was mourning for you know, like that was very painful. Very very painful. I had to I had to go home and um, pretend when I heard the news I was outside and. I had to pretend that to my kids that nothing was happening. I had to go home and just go straight to the bedroom and just not talk to them. And because I couldn't even open my mouth at that that time, um, so more pain and more. It's almost like the, the the wound is getting bigger and bigger and going into different parts of your body. Um, I found following actually Rifat's death, I kind of I never wrote poetry and I sort of started writing it now somehow, but mostly sort of short, small poems that I've put in on social media. And I've found them very, very therapeutic, just kind of really following on his footsteps. Um, we did talk about that before, that I, and I did say I'm not a poet. I can never write poetry. I, I love it, but I just don't know how to write it. Uh, I write fiction and drama and long stories. I can talk forever, but not succinct, beautiful words put together. Um, but I found that recently actually quite really therapeutic, um, just sort of like to sit down and focus about a small kind of thing and a feeling, just one feeling of, yeah, um, anything, love and other stuff about the war and when the war ends and how things are set. So that's been, yeah, really helpful, I suppose. Um, I continue to swim in cold water uh, every day in the Serpentine in Hyde Park. It's, it's uh, four degrees today, um, uh, four Celsius, um, with the air temperature of minus two. Uh, just, you know, um, getting a near-death experience so I can feel alive again, but also mm. feel how lucky I am and how privileged I am. There was, um, I took a picture um, of the water and I put it, there's this big uh, group called uh, the Outdoor Swimming Society on Facebook. It's got about 130k um, people, fellow swimmers who swim outdoors, crazy nutters like me who swim in freezing water. And they're all over the world, but mostly in the UK, it's a UK group. And the picture, there is an admin, and the picture took ages to uh, be approved by the admin. Uh, and just as I was about to message them and say what's happening, they um, kind of put it up. And then I saw in the comments a lot of people objected to what I wrote there because my comments, my post uh, said that, you know, swimming in this water, I was just thinking of how lucky and privileged that I'm swimming in this vast body of water in a serpentine lake in Hyde Park while my family in Gaza can't find a drink of water. Um, and it just made me feel connected to them and I wish I could swim all the way to them and, and make them feel better. 
uh, and give them a hug or something. And there was massive complaints in there about that this is a political post. Um, <laughs> and it shouldn't be. This group is about um, <laughs> swimming in cold water. And uh, you, you, and you should have said you should have said they were in Ukraine. No, no one would have complained Ukraine. then. <laughs> I nearly did it, to be honest with you. Um, but, but, but I mean, to the admin's credit, they kind of didn't delete the post and actually commented on on the picture, saying, you know, no, this is uh, this is the right post. This is about how he feels, and 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 it, and it is correct, you know. And we're going to leave it there, whether you like it or not. So they didn't delete the post, I suppose. But it just, you know, you know, people on social media they just can write whatever. But it's just a reminder of how people sometimes think that, yeah, you don't deserve to live. You don't deserve this. It's actually, like if you read the comments, some of them, like, they would just go make you feel like you don't deserve to have a life like that. And it's just yeah. a reminder that actually there are some people who really, really are just racist by DNA. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that, that, that your very lot. existence is a sort yeah. of political a lot, act, a lot. Yeah. attack on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot, a lot, actually. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. that that's an experience, you know, I, I think about, you know, how hard this is for you, particularly Ahmed, being away from your family. But we're in touch with many Palestinians from Gaza like you who are now in the UK or in the US or in in Ireland. And we've spoken to some of them in the, on this live stream and some of them write for the electronic intifada regularly. And right now I'm actually in Amman in Jordan. And it's so nice to be in a place where um, people don't want you dead just for being Palestinian, mm-hmm. where, you, where you feel surrounded mm-hmm. by people who largely feel the same way you do. And uh, that's such a change. I, I think in a sense we internalize the hatred as well in the sense mm. that we think well actually we we don't deserve better in a way i mean of course we we don't believe that but you you start to expect those reactions mm. and I, I think sometimes getting out of places like the us or the uk if you can where zion mm. those are the real strongholds of zionism sometimes Canada too. I don't want John to feel left out. Um, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but but sometimes you need that. You know, if you're lucky enough to be able to travel, you need that to remind you that actually mm. humanity is on our side. The world mm. is on our side, and mm. uh, yeah. it's it's to remind ourselves. But it's interesting, Ali, because I think what is happening now is even worse because people have galvanized in a sense. There is a split now about the ceasefire and, and the kind of the genocide. There's people who are against it, and I, you know that a lot of people are against it, but there are people for it. This is the difference. You know, it's not like I'm in between, mm, I'm not so sure. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's either you're against it or for it, which I find incredible. Like. Um, and you see that a lot, not just on, on social media, but you see that even in, on the news, you know, I mean, you know, you saw the, I mean, a lot of people saw the, the, the interview with Mustafa Barghouti, for example, with that talk TV journalist, for example, that's somebody who's pro-genocide, right? Yeah. Um, it's clear, you know, so it's, it's, I found that fascinating. It's not just like, oh, I'm in the sense, maybe the Palestinian question was 
before, um, well, I don't understand, it's complicated. I don't think people now say that it's complicated and I don't understand and I don't know where I stand. I, essentially, no, I'm against the genocide, I'm against these war crimes and wars against humanity. Or actually, mm, Israel has the right to defend itself and therefore they should carry on. What do you expect them to do? All of that bullshit argument that is leading to what, what, we, what we're seeing right now. And, and that's essentially, from an anthropological perspective, it's fascinating once 10 years down the line or something to actually see how people can be governed like that. Um, but I, I, again, like I said last time on this on this program, um, I blame the media. I really blame the Western media because they continue to give cover to this. They continue to to push that agenda of genocide nonstop. You know, every day, more subtly now than they did before, but they continue to do it. Yeah. Well, uh, Ahmed Masood, um, we want to thank you for. Uh, coming back on the live stream um, and updating us on your family. And uh, I think we're all, we all resonated with that image, um, that metaphor that you had about being the, the tissue paper that's kind of dancing above the flames very delicately. And um, I think we're all, we're all in that, in that mindset at the moment. Um, and we, I really appreciate you putting, um, you know, putting words to that feeling. Uh, as you do as a novelist, as a poet, as an educator. Um, thank you so much, Ahmed, and, and we'll be back in touch with you very soon. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A pleasure all, to our be here. all our love to you and to your family and to all the Palestinians from Gaza uh, who are around the world separated from their families. We, uh, we're thinking of you. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much, Ahmed, yeah. everybody. Thank you. Thanks. And you are listening and watching uh, the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, before we go to John, uh, Ali, we, I, I mentioned a palate cleanser. Um, well, just some light relief because, <laughs> I mean, I mean Ahmed, Ahmed brings, you know, he, we're talking about such terrible things with him, such painful things, but he yeah. brings a certain joy to it and he brings a, I mean, you, you know, uh, for, for all the pain he must be going through, uh, talking to him, I feel better in a way, which is mm. which is which is very strange. It's 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 the way um, the way I used to feel reassured by Rifat. Uh, I yeah. don't know how how that is, but uh, I think it's that. Um, you know, this is not an abstract thing. This is really happening in people's lives and i think just simply having that connection even though we're not hearing good news i think simply having the connection for me lifts my spirits a, a little bit um but uh yeah we had uh, we we did we did have something i wanted to share with with uh people nora because as you know and as our viewers know we've been doing a lot of investigative journalism about October 7th at the Electronic Intifada. For example, we were the first publication in the English language to fully translate and publish the interview of Yasmin Porat, the Israeli survivor who testified about how it was Israeli tank shells in Kibbutz Be'eri that killed her partner and um, other Israeli civilians there and not Hamas. Uh, fighters 
and of course that interview went viral and we've done so much reporting last week of course we did the debunking of the uh, new york times so-called investigation into the into israel's mass rape claims and and even since that live stream we've it, that that new york times report has fallen apart even more yeah. um so all this investigative journalism we're doing nora um myself and all our colleagues at the electronic intifada has attracted attention from some big name media. <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah, we got we got an email from the none other than the Washington Post, which w wants to write an article about the electronic intifada. Can you believe it? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, that's that's. I'm assuming that's a good thing. We're we're getting the recognition well, that we deserve from the corporate media, right? Well, perhaps. Uh, we, so we got an email from um, Elizabeth Dwoskin, who uh, covers social media for the Washington Post. And she wrote to me saying, um, I cover social media for the Washington Post, and I'm writing a piece about efforts to minimize or misdirect information about the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. As part of this piece, I'm noting various headlines on your service that point to evidence of Israeli deaths being caused by the Israeli army. I'm also noting that uh, many people I've spoken to who believe that the IDF was responsible for October 7 cite the work of Electronic Intifada. Then she asks a question about one of our articles that I'll come back to in a second. Yeah. But then she asks this question. Do you believe that Hamas was behind the October 7 attacks, as is well documented? Why does your publication claim otherwise, as noted above? We describe the Electronic Intifada as a far-left publication that is focused on Palestine and has an anti-Israel bent. We'd appreciate your comment in the story. So you can see a very impartial reporter there. And... <laughs> I challenge I challenge anyone uh, watching or anywhere to find where we have ever said that Hamas did not launch an offensive on October 7th. I mean, it's just ridiculous what she's implying there. But how does she get to this? She picks on one story we wrote. It's actually a story by... Uh, uh, Asa Winstanley, who is, of course, right with us here. And this was a story that you wrote, Asa, in November. Uh, there it is on the screen. The evidence Israel killed its own citizens on 7 October. And Asa, this was an article that compiled all of the solid evidence, including Yasmin Parat's interview, which we had published uh, earlier, and the other reports and other pieces of evidence that have come out up to that point showing clearly not that you know i mean just to be clear clear asa you don't say in that article that hamas didn't launch an offensive on israel's military bases on and settlements on october 7th right you don't say that yeah, I mean, I found that quite striking, uh, rereading that email from Elizabeth Doskin there. I mean, it really suggests that she hasn't read the article beyond perhaps the headline, um, because further down the article, I describe it as, uh, I mentioned um, Yasmin Porat was a survivor of kibbutz, quoting, 
survivor of Kibbutz Be'eri, one of dozens of Israeli settlements along the frontier with Gaza, that Palestinian fighters assaulted on the 7th of October. I describe it as a as an assault by the, the Palestinian resistance led by Hamas. Like, there's no, well, you know, so, so for her to say so, that is... So she's um, lying yeah. about what's in your article. She's claiming... She's either lying or she hasn't read it, which, you know, I'm not sure which one is worse, to be honest well, with you. Well, I, I mean, I, I think she must have read it because I think what happened is she said that, you know, lots and lots of people who are saying that the Israeli army killed its own people on October 7th are citing the electronic intifada or sharing our stories, which is fantastic. Right. It's great to have that confirmation from the Washington Post yeah. that our work is reaching far and wide. But I suspect that, you know, she and her colleagues at the Washington Post have had a very frustrating time over the last few weeks going through all our articles, clicking on all the links, uh, hoping to find an error, hoping to find a mistranslation, and then saying, dang, there they go again being accurate. <laughs> oh, their translation, 100% correct again. We can't find anything wrong with these people's reporting, but we've yeah. been assigned this job of representing them as crazy far-left conspiracy theorists who are saying that, that uh, Hamas didn't launch an offensive on o October 7th. Uh, so it's just incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this is... But that, that was the email she wrote to us, yeah. And Ali, you replied to her and put it up on Twitter, right? I did. I sent a reply. I think we can show it on the screen. I don't know if you want me to read the whole thing, uh, but I know that some people are listening and that type is very small. So yeah. maybe maybe I'll just read a little bit of it to give people a sense of it. Great. And I said, uh, dear Ms. Dwoskin, it would appear that the reach and success of the electronic intifada in debunking and exposing the kind of pro-Israel propaganda routinely published by the Washington Post is now causing enough worry that you have been assigned to do a hit piece in which labels such as far left and anti-Israel will be deployed in order to try to, to misdirect your readers from our careful factual reporting. I suggested also that more accurate labels for our publication might be pro-fact, pro-Palestinian rights, pro-international law, and anti-genocide. But... Um, because the Washington Post is unable to poke holes in our reporting, they have to rely on these dog whistles and labels uh, like far left or anti-Israel just because they, they cannot show to their readers that we're actually wrong. And I did point out that we were the first publication to fully translate the interviews of Yasmin Parat. Uh, and we revealed that, it, uh, and who, who revealed, Yasmin Parat revealed, that it was Israeli tank fire, not Hamas, which killed her partner and other Israeli civilians there. And I noted that the Washington Post has completely neglected and ignored that story. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also said that we're very happy to see a wide and growing audience for what we do, careful factual reporting, and that this is causing worry to the Washington Post. And uh, I said we would continue to do our factual reporting, and I have no doubt she would continue to do her smears and propaganda on behalf of supporters of 
genocide. And I did put that uh, her email and my response up on uh, Twitter, and it went absolutely viral. I was surprised. It's been uh, retweeted and liked, uh, you know, thousands of times and made quite a big uh, impact. So that was quite yeah. nice to, to see. And of course, uh, <laughs> EI is not the only publication that uh, attracted the Washington Post's interest. Um, of course, the Gray Zone as well got a similar yeah. theory. Yeah, they did. And uh, actually, before we go to that, I, let's just say a little bit more about Elizabeth Dworkin, because I think that will be uh, provide us a bit of yeah. context with that. Because when we got this email, we looked into her, and she is the Silicon Valley correspondent of the Washington Post. It all sounds very, um, very uh, wholesome. Uh, but Tamara, uh, can you look? Can you show the second tweet in my thread? that uh, the original post, I'm sorry if I didn't set that up with you earlier, but actually we looked back at Elizabeth Droskin. She was a student at Columbia University in the early 2000s. And at that time she wrote an article for the Columbia Spectator, which is a campus, uh, a campus publication uh, in which uh, she maybe uh, click on that second uh, image in the in the tweet yeah where she's talking about the nakba in 1948 and she says that before the british swept in there was no palestinian nation the territory was taken from the ailing ottoman empire and consisted of desert bedouins without a sense of national identity as we know it today so Elizabeth Dwoskin, who has been assigned to write this article about the electronic intifada, is a Nakba denier. She denies the existence of the hundreds of Palestinian cities, towns, and villages, and suggests that there was nothing there but uh, a few so-called desert Bedouins. So she's actually an extreme right-wing Zionist, is what she reveals herself to be here. And uh, if you look at her Washington Post author page. We can go back to that now, uh, Tamara. And I don't know if we can scroll down to some of her articles or if, if that's a screenshot. But she does these propaganda pieces for the Washington Post, including one that she actually bragged that she spent two years on. It's a terrible article. I read it. Um, I think it's uh, the keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, oh, yeah, there it is. How Russian disinformation. This is just an incredible piece of work that she spent two years on. I don't mean incredible as a compliment, but um, she actually, in the setup to this article, she, uh, I don't know if you can scroll down to the first paragraphs, Tamara. She actually, yeah, that's good. She, the heroes in this story are these pair of Israeli spooks called Roy Burstein and Lior Chorev, who are up to no good in Africa. They, as she describes them, one is a veteran political operative and the other a former army intelligence officer who run like a political dirty tricks company, uh, which uh, you can hire to do political dirty tricks for you, uh, to publish fake news and this sort of thing. And they were, had been hired to keep the president of Burkina Faso uh, in power. And 
she paints them as like the good guys in this story. And she claims that in their work, they discovered that the people of Burkina Faso and other countries in Africa that have been throwing out French and American and other neo-colonialists were actually put up to it by Russian disinformation. So just the same way Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election because of uh, uh, Vladimir Putin putting funny memes on Facebook, according to all of the American media for years, uh, (laughs) people in Africa are demanding their sovereignty, their dignity, their independence, their control over their resources because they're being manipulated by big, bad Russia. This is the person who is doing this a story on us and also, as you pointed out, The Gray Zone, uh, which is another publication that has also been focusing on uh, debunking many of the lies about October 7th. And I wrote... She may not be on the story anymore. She may have been pulled. We don't know. I mean, she takes, she takes two years to write a story, so I, I, I think it's too early to tell. We'll have to wait at least two years to know if the story has been, uh, has been uh, spiked. But uh, I wrote back to that email, and she did respond with one word and say received. So I know she, she got it. But uh, uh, the Gray Zone took a slightly different approach. Uh, and I think we can run that video now. By the way, in, in the email, she did include her phone number. I, I of course, didn't publish her yeah. her phone number, but uh, I assume she sent it to the Gray Zone too, and, and they decided not to write back, but they decided to call her. So we can have a look at that. Let's try one more time, because you never and know. And this is Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté of the Gray Zone. Here we go. Hello? Yeah, hi. Is this Elizabeth DeVoskin? May I ask who's calling? Yeah, hi. It's Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone, and I'm here with my colleague, Aaron Maté. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for calling. Sure. Um, yeah. You wanted so, to talk about our factual journalism? I did. Um, <laughs> I wanted to interview for my piece. Um, yeah, I got an email from you accusing us of minimizing the atrocities on October 7th. Um, so I'm wondering if it's possible, um, because I'm about to be on another call, if we could um, schedule a time to speak Monday or Tuesday. Um, I obviously won't run fire to that. I, well, I'd like to talk right now before we, we do that, because I am confused Based on the, t- the the language in your email, you are accusing us of minimizing atrocities on October 7th, but you're not, it doesn't seem like you're, I'm trying to figure out what you're trying to do here and why you're, you, it seems like you're planning to attack the investigative journalists who have helped expose a major scandal, us and Ali Abunima, which has been confirmed even by Israeli media and by Israeli military officials like Colonel Golan Vak, in which Israel killed Israeli civilians on October 7th. There were friendly fire orders. You're attacking us instead of doing the investigation yourself on this scandal. And I'm really confused about why that is. Um, So I definitely want to talk through everything. I don't want you to feel attacked. Um, I want to talk through points in the story. Um, 
I'm of course aware that there was friends, that there were deaths due to friendly fire. Um, and I've read the Israeli media reports as well, um, some of which you cite. And yeah, let's just. So how are we minimizing? Just tell me now, how are we minimizing atrocities by reporting these facts? So I'm about to be on another call and you're kind of springing on me. Um, what I appreciate doing is scheduling a time to talk so that we can, I can hear everything that you have to say and talk you through everything. Just the way question I is for you. No, wait, Aaron, Aaron, sorry, Aaron Mate, Aaron Mate has a question. It's yeah. not at all. I can't always get him here. We didn't contact you. You contacted us. So we want to hear from you. What is your issue with us? How are we minimizing what happened on October 7th? If you believe that since you wrote it, it should be easy to explain. So let's hear it. So I appreciate you asking my questions. My other call is starting. Asking me questions. My other call is starting in a minute. When is your um, other call over? I I don't know. It's another interview. Um, but I just I I, I mean no. But we really need to. We really need to. We need to have trust. We need to have trust before we, we go any further. And I see that you have minimized the Nakba of Palestinians writing for Columbia University's paper. You describe them as just a bunch of desert Bedouins. Are you a Zionist? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I mean, I see you're retweeting I, Barry Weiss, who's a major supporter of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. And I need to know, are you ideologically committed to the system of Zionism. And I'm, it's very curious that someone like that would be assigned to this story. Uh, and it's also curious to me that the Washington Post refuses to investigate the real story and hold accountable this powerful apartheid state and is instead attacking independent journalists. You are afflicting the afflicting, afflicted and comforting the powerful as the Washington Post has traditionally done. So why, why should we even trust you to set up some kind of call? I mean, that is completely up to you uh, to do so. Are you a Zionist? Sir, that is completely up to you to set up a call. This isn't about any personal biases, ideologies. That's not what this Do you support Israel's military campaign in Gaza? Excuse me? What is it? I feel like you're interrogating me and... My well, you just—you deserve um, to be interrogated. It's highly inappropriate that someone who seems to have such deep affection for an apartheid state committing genocide would be assigned to this story and is attacking independent journalists who produce factual journalism on a major scandal instead of holding to account the state and military responsible for that scandal. And by the way, why is the Washington Post always minimizing genocide? the attack on the Maghazi refugee camp. It was referred to as just uh, strikes against Hamas in the Washington Post. Where is this? You're the social media reporter. Where is the report on all of the Israeli social media posts, the TikTok posts celebrating the genocide of Gaza, mocking people in Gaza for having their water and energy turned off, the Israeli soldiers in Gaza proudly committing war crimes on TikTok, broadcasting it to the world. Have you written one story about that as the social media reporter? So feel free to send me anything, any articles or clips that you think. Feel free to answer the question. Being a sub, that you feel free to send me any articles or clips. See, this is why nobody trusts corporate media and why they're reading electronic intifada in the gray zone, because you can't even answer these questions. You can't even tell us about your own Zionism and why you're doing this hit piece. You're, 
I'm really just taken aback. Why? I wanted to I'm taken aback. Because, okay, well, I apologize for being taken aback, but I feel like the next step, the natural step that anyone does when one is interviewing a story subject is for anyone who's mentioned or has a reference in a story is to talk the whole thing through, to schedule a time and talk it through. So that's all I'm saying. You didn't even ask me in the email so to schedule a time or talk it through. So I apologize. You could have sent um, questions. Because I'm running late to another call. Um, so I'll send a follow-up email to your email with suggesting some time. Does that work? Do you, do you still believe that, that Palestinians, that the people of Palestine were just desert Bedouins before, before Israel? Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's Elizabeth Dwoskin, who has been assigned to do a hit piece on the Electronic Intifada and the Gray Zone and perhaps other independent publications, too. I don't know. But, you know, let me just say that uh, it's very flattering that our work has become effective enough that the Washington Post or whoever put them up to it thinks that we need to be taken down a notch by uh, having, and I, I sincerely hope the article comes out. I yeah. think that will be a laugh riot and um, we should, uh, we would, we would have a lot of fun with that. But also let me say, of course, uh, not waste the opportunity to say thank you. All of this fantastic investigative reporting <laughs> and all the reporting we do that is causing such anguish at the Washington Post is thanks to our viewers and readers. Uh, and so thanks for all your support and uh, keep it coming. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Um, can I well, make, uh, yeah. before oh, we move ahead. on to yeah. the next section, can I make one quick point? Yeah. Yeah, just uh, about my article. Um, just to note that irony actually that one of the a key source in the article is actually the washington post mm -hmm. um tomorrow if you scroll down to um this yes here we go that image um yeah if you could scroll up to that image um the when you know when you posted this e email her email and the your really brilliant response early online i saw a lot of people and max in that clip made the point as well that instead of doing this hit job, the Washington Post should be putting its resources into actually investigating this stuff, you know, because the evidence is there, you know, it, it wasn't yeah. just Kibbutz Be'eri and Yasmin Porat. Similar things happened all over the South in, all, in, in many of these settlements, and we don't know, you know, the full extent of it yet. And you can see this image is actually from a Washington Post video. Right, they already of, have reporters uh, there. Yeah, it's it, it's all of this evidence is there in plain sight, and the mainstream media, like Washington Post, is choosing ideologically to They're ignore pretending it. not it's, to yeah. see any of it, and then they are turning on us, a small independent publication, and, and they're enraged because we're actually doing the work they should be doing of of digging through the evidence, piecing it all together, translating the material from Hebrew checking it once, checking it twice, checking it three times. They have not been able to lay a finger on our reporting. Yeah. They haven't been able to say you mistranslated this or you got this wrong or you got that wrong. Because if they had, she would have put it to us. She would have put it in her email. This is a hit job.
to try to smear us. And I have to say, I'm very proud, as I said in the email, that of the work we're doing, that it has uh, this much anger at the semi-official mouthpiece of the United States government yeah. uh, in Washington. Yes. And our video, our, I mean, this is a point we've made before, but you know, our viewers will be familiar enough with the Palestinian resistance's weapons by now to know that that image that we saw in in that Washington Post, uh, in, in that still that I used in my article from the Washington Post video, there's no way. I mean, that that looks like a, that is from an Israeli settlement, Kufa Azza, uh, Gaza village in Hebrew. Um, and, you know, there's no, it looks like a house in Gaza that's been flattened by Israeli shelling because it was flattened with the same weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, Ali, keep us posted on Elizabeth's uh, reply, obviously. Um, and with that, John. Hi, John. Hey, can I say that I believe October 7th was a devastating military raid that collapsed the Gaza division and captured the commanders of the division and brigade level who will presumably free all Palestinian prisoners in jail and put Palestinians on uh, a trajectory for statehood after being ignored for uh, decades? Here we go. This is really the untold story. This is the untold story. Yeah. Just so we know, just so everybody's very clear uh, about it. And I think that there'll be more time to talk more about October 7th and we should do something. And I, I look forward to these uh, human rights groups and media outlets uh, who have tons of resources um, to do investigations uh, about what happened in the south of Israel. And mm-hmm. uh, we welcome those investigations and would love to see them. I mean, the Washington Post has spent 50 days um, telling us that there was uh, a basement in Shifa Hospital. They have all their reporters right there. Why don't they right. go into these settlements and tell us what happened and break it down? Um, because what we know is that uh, what's on camera and what's shown on video from fighters and CCTV uh, camera footage is a devastating military raid with uh, almost unspeakable uh, levels of intelligence um, that dismantled Israel's Gaza division. So nobody's downplaying the significance of that. Nobody's accusing uh, Israel of creating October 7th. It was created by the hands of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip under besiegement. Um, and it was a devastating success that military historians will study for generations if the world still exists that long. Hmm. And with that, um, John, you have uh, obviously been watching some of the most recent uh, videos that the Palestinian resistance have um, continued to put out, also with devastating success against the enemy. Um, give us a rundown of, of what you've been watching the last uh, week or so, and um, let's let's watch some of these examples. Sure. So let's start. We're going to start with Lebanon, um, because in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah carried out a raid here on uh, the Maron air control Uh, base of the Israelis, which is a secret Israeli base here, eight kilometers across the border. Um, And that's, the Israelis don't say what it does. It's obviously a very significant uh, base that's in control of the management and surveillance of their air power, controlling their drone warfare. And it's one of only two bases in Israel. They have one in the north and one in the south that handles all of this. Um, and this is in response to the assassination of Salah Haruri um, that Nasrallah said the other day, uh, 
um, was imminent, and then the next day uh, this attack happened. And what we're seeing here is 62 missiles um, fired on this critical uh, Israeli base that there's no replacement for. Those domes are long-range radar domes that are used to um, basically for war um, uh, warplanes and drones, air traffic control. Um, and intelligence and surveillance. And so what we're watching here is a Hezbollah attack on this facility, which shows, um, the video will, will, will go back around again, but shows clearly that Hezbollah has detailed intelligence on something that is otherwise secret um, because of Israel's military censor. There's a number of, uh, of clauses in their censor that would cover an attack like this. You can't report on the capabilities. So this is the look, the view from Lebanon uh, into um, this Maron uh, air traffic base. This is the highest mountain in occupied Palestine, um, and it has overlook over the whole region. It's who um, is in control of the assassinations, for example, of Sahla Haruri, who was killed, as we reported last week, uh, in the Dahia by a drone strike. Um, as well as their attacks in Syria um, and any long-range uh, threats from the north. And so what we're seeing here is Hezbollah attacking it in detail, 62 missiles um, clearly hitting the base. We're showing um, footage from Hezbollah showing them uh, hitting that base, which is clear. Um, obviously, qualitative upgrade in the type of attacks coming from Lebanon. This is um, the deepest attack to that point. Um, that Hezbollah had hit inside uh, of Israel. When Israel changed the rules of the game by hitting the Dahia, they opened themselves up for this type of attack. And this is really the unknown question of about a war with Hezbollah is we haven't seen Hezbollah's capabilities since 2006. And what's, what's not clear is how much intelligence and how much their precision guided missiles are able to hit uh, the targets that they want to hit with devastating payloads. Um, and so this is just really the tip of the iceberg of if Israel was going to open uh, a front in the north. But we can see um, that Hezbollah has this capability. They're hitting here, um, they're hitting here with anti-tank missiles um, fired from, from Lebanon. Um, which which travel below the Iron Dome. So Israel's unable to knock these weapons out of the air. And the IDF had to admit, even though it's shrouded in sensors, they had to admit that they had to call on their backup uh, surveillance and air traffic control in the north, which apparently is our balloons, um, because there's no replacement for this base. And look at this 3D modeling that Hezbollah has of every aspect of the base that they're detailing here. Um, so I think really it's just a tip of the iceberg about what we're seeing. And then just to bring the media into this, the New York Times called this uh, a symbolic, uh, uh, like a meaningless symbolic attack that they said hit, hit a small military base. That's how they uh, reported on this attack, which is clearly a qualitative increase in the war and would be something that would be important to report on if you weren't um, uh, dependent on uh, Israeli censors. And what we're seeing there with the two circles is uh, Hezbollah's um, double anti-tank missile. They combined the Cornet potent anti-tank missile.